Bakersoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Sir Gibby, Episode 61 The Wedding In the meantime, Fergus, by degrees, lost heart and hope so far as concerned Geneva and at length told the laird that, much as he valued his society, and was indebted for his kindness, he must deny himself the pleasure of visiting any more at the cottage, so plainly was his presence unacceptable to Miss Galbraith. The laird blustered against his daughter, and expostulated with the preacher, not forgetting to hint at the ingratitude of forsaking him after all he had done and borne in the furthering of his interests. Jenny must at length come to see what reason and good sense required of her, but Fergus had at last learned his lesson and was no longer to be blinded. Besides, there had lately come to his church a certain shopkeeper, retired, rich, with one daughter, and as his hope of the dignity of being married to Geneva faded. He had come to feel the enticement of Miss Laprake's money and good looks, which gained in force considerably when he began to understand the serious offsets there were to the honor of being son-in-law to Mr. Galbraith. In himself and his position, he was at least looked upon with respect, argued Fergus, and indeed the man was as honest as it is possible for any worshipper of mammon to be. Fergus therefore received the laird's expostulations and encouragements with composure. But, when at length, in his growing acidity, Mr. Galbraith reflected on his birth and his own condescension, showing him friendship, Fergus left the house never to go near it again. Within three months, for a second protracted courtship was not to be thought of, he married Miss Laprake and lived respectable ever after, took to writing hymns, became popular afresh through his poetry. He counted himself fortunate and thought himself happy. His fame spread, he had good health, his wife worshipped him, and if he had had a valet, I have no doubt he would have been a hero to him. When the next evening came, and Fergus did not appear, the laird fidgeted then stormed, then sank into a moody silence. When the second night came, and Fergus did not come, the sequence was the same, with exasperated symptoms. Night after night passed thus, and Geneva began to fear for her father's reason. She challenged him to play backgammon with her, but he scorned the proposal. She begged him to teach her chess, but he scouted the notion of her having wit enough to learn. She offered to read to him, and treated him to let her do something with him, but he repelled her every advance with contempt and surliness, with which now and then broke into rage and vituperation. As soon as Gibby returned, Geneva left him know how badly things were going with her father. They met, consulted, agreed that the best thing was to be married at once made their preparations, and confident that, if asked, he would refuse his permission, proceeded for his sake as if they had had it. One morning, as he sat at breakfast, Mr. Galbraith received from Mr. Torrey, whom he knew as the agent in the purchase of Glass Rock, and whom he supposed to have 
bought it for Major Kosselman a letter, more than respectful, stating that matters had come to light regarding the property which rendered his presence on the spot indispensable for their solution, especially as there might be papers of consequence in view of the points in question in some drawer or cabinet of those he had left locked behind him. The present owner, therefore, thought, through Mr. Tory, begged most respectfully that Mr. Galbraith would sacrifice two days of his valuable time and visit Glassrock. The result, he did not doubt, would be to the advantage of both parties, if Mr. Galbraith would kindly signify to Mr. Tory his assent a carriage and four with, with postulants, that he might make the journey in all possible comfort should be at his house the next morning at ten o'clock, if that hour would be convenient. For weeks the laird had been an unmitigated bore to himself, and the invitation laid hold upon him by the most projecting handle of his being, namely his self-importance. He rode at once to signify his gracious assent, and in the evening told his daughter he was going to Glassrock on business, and had arranged for Miss Kimball to come and stay with her till his return. At nine o'clock the schoolmistress came to breakfast and at ten a travelling carriage, with four horses drew up at the door, looking nearly as big as the cottage, with monstrous stateliness, and a fur coat in his arm, the laird descended to his garden gate, and got into the carriage, which instantly dashed away for the western road, restoring Mr. Galbraith to the full consciousness of his inherent grandeur. If he was not exactly laird of Glassrock again, he was something quite as important. His carriage was just out of the street, when a second also, with four horses, drew up to the astonishment of Miss Kimball at the garden gate. Out of it stepped Mr. and Mrs. Sclatter, then a young gentleman, whom she thought very graceful until she discovered it was that low-lived Sir Gilbert, and Mr. Tory, the lawyer. They came trooping into the little drawing-room, shook hands with them both, and sat down. Sir Gilbert beside Geneva, but nobody spoke. What could it mean? A morning call? It was too early. And four horses to a morning call? A pastoral visitation? Four horses and a lawyer to a pastoral visitation? A business call. There was Mrs. Slatter, and that Sir Gilbert? It must, after all, be a pastoral visitation, for there was the minister commencing a religious service during which, however, it suddenly revealed itself to the horrified spinster that she was a part and parcel of a clandestine wedding. An anxious father had placed her in charge of his daughter, and this was how she was fulfilling her trust. There was Geneva being married in a brown dress, and to that horrid lad who called himself a baronet and hobnobbed with a low market woman. But alas, just as she was recovering her presence of mind, Mr. Sclatter pronounced them husband and wife. She gave a shriek and cried out, I forbid the bands, at which the company, bride and bridegroom included, broke into a loud smile. The ceremony over, Geneva glided from the room and returned almost immediately in her little brown bonnet. Sir Gilbert caught up his hat, and Geneva held out her hand to Miss Kimball. Then at length the bashed 
and a grieved lady found words of her own. Geneva, she cried, you are never going to leave me alone in the house. After inviting me to stay with you till your father returned? But the minister answered her, it was her father who invited you, I believe, not Lady Galbraith, he said, and you understood perfectly that the invitation was not meant to give her pleasure. You would, doubtless, have her postpone her wedding journey on your account, but my lady is under no obligation to think of you. He had heard of her tattle against Sir Gilbert, and thus rudely showed his resentment. Miss Kimball burst into tears. Geneva kissed her and said, Never mind, dear Miss Kimball, you could not help it. The whole thing was arranged. We are going after my father, and we have the best horses. Mr. Tory laughed outright. A new kind of runaway marriage, he cried. The happy couple pursuing the ob obstinate parent with four horses. Ha, ha, ha. But after the ceremony, said Mr. Splatter. Here the servant ran down the steps with a carpet bag and opened the gate for her mistress. Lady Galbraith got into the carriage. Sir Gilbert followed. There was kissing and tears at the door of it. Mrs. Splatter drew back. The postulants spurred their horses off with the second carriage, faster than the first, and the minister's party walked quietly away, leaving Miss Kimball to declaim to the maid of all work, who cried so that she did not hear a word she said. The schoolmistress put on her bonnet, and full of indignation carried her news of the treatment to which she had been subjected to the Reverend Fergus Duff who remarked himself that it was sad to see youth and beauty turn away from genius and influence to wed money and idiocy, gave a sigh, and went to see Miss Lathbrake. Between the second stage and the third, Gibby and Geneva came in sight of their father's carriage. Having arranged with the postulants that the two carriages should not change horses at the same place, they easily passed unseen by him. While thinking of nothing so little as their proximity, he sat in state before the door of a village inn. Just as Mr. Galbraith was beginning to hope the Major had contrived a new approach to the place, the carriage took an unexpected turn, and he found presently they were climbing by a zigzag road, the height over the lorry burn. But the place was no longer his, and to avoid a sense of humiliation, he avoided taking any interest in the change. A young woman, it was Donald's eldest sister, but he knew nothing of her, opened the door to him and showed him up the stair to his old study. There a great fire was burning, but beyond that everything, even to the trifles on his writing table, was just as when last he left the house. His chair stood in its usual position by the fire, and wine and biscuits were on a little table near. Very considerate, he said to himself. I trust the Major does not mean to keep me waiting, though. Deuced hard to have to leave a place like this. Weary with his journey, he found a doze, dreamed of his dead wife, woke suddenly and heard the door of the room open. There was Major Kosselman entering with outstretched hand, and there was a lady, his wife, doubtless. But how young the Major was! He had imagined him a man, in middle age at least. Bless his soul. Was he never to get rid of this imposter fellow? It was not the Major. It was the rascal calling himself Sir Gilbert Galbraith. His daughter insisted on marrying. Here he was, ubiquitous 
and there was Jenny, looking as if the place was her own. The silly tears in her eyes, too. It was all too absurd. He had just been dreaming of his dead wife, and clearly that was it. He was not awake yet. He tried hard to wake, but the dream mastered him. Jenny, he said, as the two stood for a moment regarding him, a little doubtfully, but with smiles of welcome. What is the meaning of this? I did not know Major Kosselman had invited you. And what is this person doing here? Papa, replied Geneva, with a curious smile, half merry, half tearful. This person is my husband, Sir Gilbert Galbraith of Glassrock and you are at home in your own study again. Will you never have done masquerading, Jenny, he returned. Inform Major Kosselman that I request to see him immediately. He turned towards the fire and took up a newspaper. They thought it better to leave him. As he sat by degrees, the truth grew plain to him. But not one other word on the matter did the man utter to the day of his death. When dinner was announced, he walked straight from the dining-room door to his former place at the foot of the table. But Robina Grant was equal to the occasion. She caught up the dish before him and set it at the side. There Gibbie seated himself, and after a moment's hesitation, Geneva placed herself opposite her husband. The next day, Gibbie provided him with something to do. He had the chest of papers found in the odd hussy O'Galbraith carried into his study, and the lawyer found both employment and interest for weeks in deciphering and arranging them, amongst many others concerning the property, its tenures and boundaries, appeared some papers which, associated and compared, threw considerable doubt on the way in which positions of it had changed hands, and passed from those of Gibby's ancestors into those of Geneva's who were lawyers as well as Galbraith's. And the laird was keen of scent as any nose-hound after dishonesty in other people. In the course of a fortnight he found himself so much at home in his old quarters and so much interested in those papers and his books that when Sir Gilbert informed him Geneva and he were going back to the city, he pronounced it decidedly the better plan, seeing he was there himself to look after affairs. For the rest of the winter, therefore, Mr. Galbraith played the grand singer as before among the tenants of Glashrock. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic. Music